everybody, and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time, usually, hopefully. Uh, we play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. And the games are good today, you guys. The games are good today. That's right. We made it through the wasteland that was last week. Made it through the end of October. November's here, and it has brought us some very good games to talk about. I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Oh, this is this is such a palate cleanser after last week. Like it's just night and day. <laughs> like such better yeah, stuff this week. So I am true. really excited to talk about a lot of really cool history. I am really excited to talk about. Yeah, we got some great games on the docket for today. And actually, you know, let's just tell them what they are. So we're going to talk about Soul Blazer finally, which I think we had planned to do a while back, but then we found out it actually didn't come out when we thought it came out. So. Um, you know, we're doing it now. Very, very excited to finally be able to talk about that game. Then we are going to be talking about Out of This World, which uh, is something really different, really cool. Cannot wait to talk about that. We will probably be talking about that one for a while. And as a result, there's a chance we may not get to On the Ball today. Um, so if that is the case, we will push On the Ball into next week. But uh, Soul Blazer and Out of This World, two very big games with a lot of stuff to talk about. Absolutely. But before we do any of that, we're going to revisit an old friend because, uh, as you just said, we are finally in November and it is time to throw things over to Newsy once again. It's November 1992. Boys to Men's End of the Road finally hits the end of its dominance after 13 weeks as not real band The Heights' How Do You Talk to an Angel hits the top of the charts for two weeks, just before Whitney Houston enjoys a 14-week reign of her own. Disney's Aladdin hits theaters and performs poorly. No, wait, correction, it does very, very well and grosses over $200 million. And enigmatic chess master Bobby Fischer returns to the international spotlight, defeating Russian chess master Boris Spassky in an unofficial chess game, a rematch of their famous 1972 showdown in which Fischer beats Spassky to claim the World Chess Championship. Back to you, Emmy Zero and Steampunk Link. Thank you, Newsy. Oh, man. Good to it hear is, from that guy again. It is great to hear from that guy. His voice is like honey. It's wonderful. It's great to hear him again. If Newsy were some sort of character, which he definitely is not and is oh, definitely no. a, a real person, I would say I certainly hope that he remembers what that voice sounded like yeah. and how to make it. But of course, that's not a problem that we need to worry about at all because Newsy is definitely a real, real person. We promise. Aladdin came out. It was huge. Absolutely. I'm trying to remember. This is the follow-up to Beauty and the Beast. Do I have that order right? It was Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. That is entirely correct. This was a huge movie. And honestly, I don't know anybody our age who did not see this movie. It's, it's just a, a part of our cultural history. You know, I'm going to say probably this wasn't the first thing I ever was exposed to Robin Williams in because, you know, Mork and Mindy was on TV. He was in a lot of movies before this but you know this was like the the first movie that i think was made in a way where someone as young as as me could appreciate robin williams's talents yeah there's a lot of great music in the movie as you would expect from a disney film of this era i never cared for this one quite as much as beauty and the beast though no me either beauty and the beast was an interesting one for me because my father really really liked that movie 
Um, and he didn't really like Disney movies very much. So it was kind of a surprise that he liked that one so much. And it, it kind of made it stand out. And yeah, he never really cared much about Aladdin one way or another. I do think it's really good, but I was never quite as into this one as uh, as Beauty and the Beast either. It kind of didn't really resonate with me as a kid. Actually, I think I like it more as an adult than I did as a kid, oddly enough. But I, I don't know why that was. It, like, for some reason, like that one just it, it didn't really affect me in the same way that it seemed to just really um, affect a lot of my friends and classmates and whatnot. But I was big into it. And I think that more so than any of the other Disney movies of this era, this one was a bit more successful at spinning out into other properties, you know, the video games, the TV shows. Well, I mean, yeah, like the, the Little Mermaid got its own, you know, TV show treatment too. And they also had that pretty good game by Capcom on the NES as well. We will get to, I believe, uh, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin video games later on. I didn't know there was a Beauty and the Beast video game. Pretty sure there is. And we will get there. <laughs> I am going to go ahead and stake my claim on this. I am glad we are doing a Super Nintendo show so we get to play the good Aladdin video game. Oh, shots fired. I'm going to say it. I've got opinions about that. And they are very firmly on the side of the Capcom Aladdin game. I have played neither of the Aladdin games, so I have no dog in this fight, at least at this point. Maybe I'll try playing both of them so that I have that point of comparison when we cover that on the show. That'll be interesting. I don't actually know when the Aladdin game comes up in the Super Nintendo's library. It's got to be sometime in the next year or so, I'm guessing. They released a lot of just random Disney properties as Super Nintendo games at various points, so Mm -hmm. some of that stuff isn't necessarily going to be when you think they would be. I mean, like, you know, we were talking about Aladdin the movie coming out, and we haven't even talked about the Beauty and the Beast game yet. Yeah, no, that's entirely true, yeah. Yeah, there are games in this library based on, like, Pinocchio and the Jungle Book, among other things, so... We are going to be playing a Mickey Mouse game before the end of 1992. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I haven't played that one other than that we have uh bobby fisher i don't know a whole lot about that guy that i want to get into (laughs) right now Uh, same here great chess champion kind of a lot of pretty sad ugly stuff about him towards the the end of his life this match i know did put him back in the news for a little while in in the early 90s I, i feel like the sort of like chess master as a like celebrity athlete i guess you'd say is is a pretty unique thing and there's not very many of them so yeah bobby fisher was a very big deal for sure the only thing i really think of when i think of bobby fisher is the movie searching for bobby fisher which is not actually about bobby fisher it's not about him no. it's about a different chess prodigy joshua waitskin the the attempts to kind of train him up so that he can be a chess champion on the the level of a Bobby Fischer, basically. And uh, The Heights, which apparently is actually a fictional band from a TV show of the same name, The Heights, which would explain why I don't remember anything about this. My suspicion is probably that this song was more successful than the TV show itself in a lot of ways, just because I do remember this song And I remember it being in, like, ads for the TV show The Heights. And I was really confused when I found out that the the song was done by a band called The Heights. Because I was like, oh, did I get that wrong? Was it just, like, the theme tune to, like, a random TV show by this band? But no, it turns out it is very much a kind of Monkees-style situation where the fictional band from the show released this song. I don't think the show really had much in the way of staying power. Are you telling me that a show that aired on the Fox Network 
only lasted a single season and wasn't renewed and maybe even canceled before that one season aired all of its episodes? Preposterous. That never happens. Sounds implausible, I know, but takes all kinds to make a world. Anyway, um, we need to get off of this because we've got at least two games to talk about, and there is a lot to talk about with these two games. We're going to try and get through them all and maybe have time for the third one as well. Let's just dive into it. We need to talk about Soul Blazer. Tell us a little bit about who made it and where it comes from before we start talking about the game itself. Yeah, so this game was made by Quintet. They also developed Act Razor, which is a game we're probably going to be comparing to this one quite a bit. Uh, also, like Act Razor, this game was published by Enix Corporation, which of course would merge with fellow Japanese RPG developer Squaresoft to become Square Enix. In 2003. I'm pretty sure we've talked about NX a little bit in the past, haven't we? They're kind of an interesting company, though, because they're not entirely what you might expect, given that they often get compared to Squaresoft in a lot of ways. Yeah, but the kinds of RPGs that they made were pretty different than the kinds of things that you would get from Squaresoft back in the day. But we'll probably do a deeper dive into NX on its own later on. For today, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Quintet's history. So the company was founded in 1989, a popular year for companies being founded, it seems. Uh, by Tomoyoshi Miyazaki and Masaya Hashimoto, who created the E-Series during their time at developer Nihon Falcom. The first five years of the company's gameography consists pretty much just of Enix-published SNES games. So along with the two ActRaiser games and Soul Blazer, they also made The Illusion of Gaia and also Robotrek, <laughs> with, uh, along with developer Ancient, which you know, we'll also get to in the future. Uh, they also did Terranigma, which uh, sadly never came to the U.S. officially. It was released in Japan and PAL regions. Yeah, which is strange because Terranigma sort of forms a loose trilogy with Soul Blazer and Illusions of Gaia. It's a, it's a bit odd that like a full English version of that game existed and was available for them to publish, and they just did not do it. We may go back at some point and find a reason to cover that one anyway, even though it didn't come out officially over here. We have thoughts about ways that we can cover some of the better games that didn't come out in the U.S. that are still very much worth talking about. That one, I think, would, would easily be on, on a list of those. So in any case, uh, going back to Quintet, they developed, like I said, a lot of things for Enix on the SNES. And as time went on, they also developed games for the PlayStation. They actually self-published two games on the Sega Saturn. The last proper games seem to be Godzilla Generations Maximum Impact for the Sega Dreamcast in 1999 and... Simple 1500 series, volume 78, The Zero Yan, a game in publisher D3's simple series of budget price software. The 1500 in the name actually indicates the price in yen. Although Wikipedia also credits them as the developer of 2002's Magical Hoshin for Game Boy Advance, which was a companion to Koei's Battle Hoshin on GameCube, which was released in America as Mystic Heroes, or as I like to call it, Chibi Dynasty Warriors. <laughs> Um, so this is where things get a little bit fuzzy, because uh, the gameographies of the company seem to differentiate uh, based on the resource I was going off of. Uh, it seems like Giant Bomb and Moby Games and Wikipedia all sort of had different opinions about what they actually made in their later years. And 
The reason for that is that they've kind of gone silent. Uh, sometime in 2002, they sort of got fed up with their fans posting a lot of angry stuff on their bulletin boards online due to a lack of communication with them about any upcoming projects. They simply said sometime in 2002 that they didn't have anything that they could really talk about and were shutting down the bulletin boards. A few years later, in 2008, their entire website went down, and today only an archive of that website exists. So the company and some of its uh, possibly former employees have popped up in the credits of other games since then. For example, the company Quintet is actually credited in two Nippon Ichi software titles for the PS2, Atelier uh, Iris and Artanelico. Quintet's actually named specifically in the credits for item illustration and special effects, respectively, in those games. So perhaps Quintet has just gone on to be a sort of shadow company, a hired gun like the Toseis of past, but I don't know for sure. And since nobody involved with the company seems to be talking about it publicly, we may never know what actually happened with Quintet. That's a real shame because they did, you know, in the 90s, some really interesting, really distinctive games like this one. And uh, yeah, it would be nice to know kind of what exactly ended up happening there. Again, for all we know, they're still doing stuff in the background. Moving on to the game itself, Soul Blazer. It shares a publisher and a developer with ActRaiser, but it also shares a premise, too. It's pretty similar. Just like in ActRaiser, you play the role of a sort of, I don't know, what would you call the character? You're a servant of a being called the Master that appears to be a benevolent, world-protecting entity. Yeah, I guess like the herald of some sort of deity, perhaps. I don't know. And I think that a lot of this is left somewhat ambiguous because of Nintendo of America harsh stance on any sort of religious stuff in any of their games like i was looking a little bit more into the soul blazer trilogy such as it is before this and yeah illusions of gaia was much more significantly altered to remove religious imagery um and then you know honestly Given what the actual premise of Terranigma is, that alone may have been why it didn't come out in America now that I'm thinking about it. I genuinely don't know how you would censor that game enough and and take out enough of the religious imagery and the, the stuff that's in it to still make it comprehensible and also stick to Nintendo of America's draconian standards in that time. So uh, the game is a top-down action RPG, not terribly dissimilar to something like Lagoon or The Legend of Zelda. Your character gets a sword pretty quickly and is sent on a mission to use it against enemies that are pouring out of portals. Kind of, um, I don't know, maybe maybe gauntlet-esque? Yeah, a little bit. To expand a little bit more on the premise, the idea is that a devil figure called Death Toll, which is a great name, has essentially like imprisoned all of the beings on the earth in these kind of demon portals. And you are going down as this champion character to revive the world by bringing back all of the trapped people. Delve into dungeons and there are these monster portals, like you said, that each time you clear one either can make a new path open in the dungeon or can make something reappear in 
the town that's adjacent to the dungeon that you're in. Yes, you can kind of already see the parallels here with Act Razor, just like in that game, how you were sent by the deity to start rebuilding the world. You're kind of doing the same thing here, except, um, well, so Act Razor was a very modular game. And uh, what I mean by that is it had v- two very distinct modes, not counting, you know, like all the menus and everything else. Yeah, yeah. You had the mode where, you know, you're top down playing as the angel, fighting off demons and helping people build up their towns in different continents. And then you have the side-scrolling action mode where you are the angelic figure who's swinging a sword and defeating monsters on foot. Here, you still have kind of a, a split between these two modes where you're interacting with the townspeople and the towns that you're slowly rebuilding and the dungeons in which you're fighting monsters and releasing people to the town from their portals. This game is much less starkly modular than ActRaiser was because you're essentially performing the same actions in both of those modes. You still have the same perspective. You're still moving around a world map. Really, the only difference is that you're not swinging a sword and you're just talking to people when you're in the towns. There's a little bit of almost like kind of adventure gamey using of, of items to open up new stuff in the towns and in places. You get an item in the first town called the Dream Rod that allows you to enter the dreams of sleeping people. And that's used multiple times to further open up areas or give you information that you need to be able to progress by being able to use that item on, on sleeping people. People and also uh, other things that are alive, like tulips. Your character can talk to any living thing, which means people, animals, trees, anything. And it's honestly really cool and charming. They do a lot of fun stuff with that. Yeah, this game is legitimately funny in places, like in ways that it feels like it was very deliberate from the writers and the uh, people who localized the game. Like at one point, you save a goat, and then you, you can go talk to the goat, and he'll give you some information. And then afterwards, he says, well, I have other things to attend to, and then just walks off. And it turns out when you follow him, he's just going to the place where you bought the goat food to feed him to get the information in the first place. And He's telling the people there, hey, give me more food. I just thought (laughs) that was really cute and funny, and I I really enjoyed that. There's just a lot of little things like that in this game that are very humorous and and fun. and It's a very lighthearted game when you're in the towns most of the time. The other thing that I like about this game that, that I think is uh, pretty different from the way ActRaiser handles its dichotomy of fighting mode and world building or world exploring mode is that you tend to bounce back and forth between the two a lot. Like what you do in the dungeons is directly affecting the town to actually rebuild the towns and save the people. You have to fight the enemies that are coming out of these portals. And then once the portal is empty, you walk over it. Then whoever was trapped in that portal becomes freed and is placed back in the town along with certain structures and things like that. So you're directly affecting the town by fighting through the dungeons, but also by doing things, as you said, in the towns, sometimes going into people's dreams, sometimes just getting key items from people. You're also affecting what happens in the dungeon. Sometimes a path forward won't be open to you until you've talked to somebody in the town who's going to give you an item or you go into their dream and you can directly affect the dungeon layout within that dream world. So there's a lot of different things happening. Everything feels very interconnected in a way that the two modes in ActRaiser kind of didn't. No, ActRaiser very much was, now you're in the town development mode, do these things to open up the next 
side-scroller level. Now play the side-scroller level in its entirety. Now you're back to to the overhead town-building mode. And yeah, this game, everything's much more interconnected, and you are encouraged, absolutely, to make frequent trips back out of the dungeon to check on the town and do stuff there. It all just kind of clicks together in a really nice way uh, that I enjoyed a lot. As you progress, you get more powerful swords, which actually let you go back and defeat enemies from earlier dungeons that you weren't able to destroy before. Doing that will then unlock more portals from those older dungeons and lets you save more people from the towns that you visited in the past and things like that. It's There's, there's just a, a lot happening here, and it's all a lot of fun. It's a pretty lighthearted game, pretty breezy, not terribly difficult. The bosses, at least the first boss uh, in that first world, is kind of cheap and it's it, not my favorite part of this game honestly d- defeating the boss is just a simple war of attrition where you just need to go in with full health and hit them enough times before your health drains and i think other boss fights are maybe a little bit better later on I- i'm remembering other boss fights that weren't quite that uncreative <laughs> you know i think one thing that's nice about this game is that the um the penalties for dying are very low you know, yeah. this game kind of does the the Dragon Quest style thing where when you die, you don't game over. You just sort of go back to the last place that you save. The only thing you lose is a consumable resource that you use to do magic attacks, which are kind of a, a secondary form of attack anyway. So you don't lose that much basically by dying. So even though things like that boss are pretty cheap, uh, which most of this game I think is very fair, but that oh, yeah. one boss for sure is not great. It is not a huge slog to get back and try the boss again, at the very least. It is a very merciful game. It, again, you know, it, it just feels like it's meant to be a pretty breezy, stress-free experience. It's it's not meant to be, you know, like, a, oh my gosh, I hope I can get past this part because I'm going to lose so much progress if I don't. I know I played more of this game the first time we were going to go through it, but I, I didn't have enough time to, to get much further than the first boss and this time around. Did you ever find yourself using the magic a lot, or is it kind of superfluous? I found it more useful by the time I got to the second dungeon, certainly. Okay. There were some enemies in that that had, like, a very long range to their attacks. So being able to use, like, the fireball spell to take them out from a a distance was pretty useful, but not, not entirely necessary. Fortunately... I did not get far enough to to experience other types of magic in this, so I don't know how useful other, other spells would be. I just remember that being one thing that I felt was a bit of a flaw with Actraiser was the fact that I went through the entire game without ever using magic. I'll say that the magic in this certainly is more useful than the magic in Actraiser. Even with some extraneous bits like that, this feels like a very thoughtfully put together game. I, I will say, I don't think the soundtrack in this is quite as distinctively good as the Yuzo Koshiro soundtrack in Actraiser. That's not a big deal, honestly. Like, the music here is still good. It's just, I wouldn't put it in, like you know, the top 10 soundtracks on the Super Nintendo. But I think it looks good, it plays well, and I had a great time playing this. Uh, in, In the very beginning of the game, one of the first people that you meet in the town talks about how lonely she is and just says, hey, do you want to be my child? And you can just say, yeah, sure. <laughs> and she's like, okay, great. You, you can rest here whenever you need to. And like, okay. I know. It's so strange. I love it. There's a guy on the bridge. The first time you talk to him, he says, I'm the guardian of this bridge. And then kind of 
thinks for a bit and says, well, you know, this is an awfully small bridge that probably doesn't really need a guard. And then he just lets you pass anytime you walk across it after that. I like that it has so much humor. And also there's kind of like a weird, slightly melancholy feel to it as well, though. Like just using the like the first town as an example, again, there's an old man who is living alone because his wife died. And he mentions that he adopted a goat that showed up not that long after his wife died. And it, it helps keep him company. And then if you talk to the goat, you find out that it is actually like the spirit of his wife reincarnated as the goat. And she's like, yeah, I just like being close to him. And like, there's nothing really funny there, but, and, and like nothing that really adds anything like mechanically to the game, but it's just like a cool little detail that makes the world feel a little bit more interesting. I hope that we've gotten, gotten across kind of why we like this game, but yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about it. So I guess uh, let's turn to the list and see where we want to place this. Obviously, I think a place to start for this one would be ActRaiser, which is all the way up at number eight. So yeah, we've been comparing it to ActRaiser all the way through the discussion, essentially. And I think that, you know, for the most part, what we've come out with is that this feels like a, a better game than ActRaiser. Like, I like this game a whole lot, and I would probably put it above ActRaiser. What do you think? I think I would, too. Um, I don't know how much higher it goes, though. The game right above that at number seven is Space Megaforce, which is an incredible shooter. And then TMNT 4 Turtles in Time right above that. And, you know, that is very strong competition. There's a part of me that could almost say... I think this goes above Final Fantasy 2 at number 5, but I don't know if I can put it above TMNT, which is below it right now at number 6, which almost makes me wonder, like, oh, did we mess up there? Should those two be swapped? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's tough. I, I mean, I think partially just because Final Fantasy 2 is easier to make direct comparisons with Soul Blazer, so it's it's easier to kind of square those with each other and see some things that I, I like more about Soul Blazer. I don't know about TMNT4, though. What do you think about putting this between TMNT4 and Space Megaforce? I think I'm okay with that. All right, so Soul Blazer, our new number seven. That does sadly push Top Gear just barely out of the top ten. But uh, there's, I mean, everything in the top, you know, 25, I would say at this point, you know, Top 30 are, are great games at this point. So uh, we've got another game that I, I could see going kind of high. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So uh, the next game is Out of This World, or Another World, as it was called in other territories. Was it an, an Amiga game originally? Um, Amiga and Atari ST, I believe, are the first things that it came out for in November of 1991. And this is actually a French game. This is the work of the designer Eric Chaki. Do you want to talk about the history of the game before we get into talking about the game itself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Eric Chahi originally developed the game for Delphine Software. The game's a cinematic platformer, big emphasis on the cinematic. The characters in the game were all rendered in vectors using rotoscoped images. In fact, Dr. Lester Chaikin, our protagonist for the game, was actually played by Chahi himself in reference footage. 
Chahi was a little uncomfortable seeing himself in the game and gave the character a few changes, including his signature red hair, to make him look different. So while the player moves the characters around in a typical 2D side-scrolling platform game, the camera will often cut to dynamic pre-rendered scenes when certain contextual events occur. An incredibly ambitious game for the time. So uh, Chahi has worked on other projects before and since then, uh, like the 1988 adventure game Journey to the Center of the Earth, based on the Jules Verne novel, and uh, out of this world pseudo-spiritual successor Heart of Darkness, which is not based on the Joseph Conrad novel. <laughs> However, even to this day, Another World, aka Out of This World, remains uh, the game that he is most well known for, and I believe that an updated version of the game is still available on his personal website. The game is said to have influenced prominent game creators like Metal Gear Solid creator Hideo Kojima, and it was also particularly influential for eco-creator Fumito Ueda. And yeah, you can absolutely see that influence if you've played any of the Team Eco games, particularly Eco itself, which, much like this game, is a melancholy journey through a strange world where two characters have to rely on each other to survive. Yeah, this is a, an incredibly influential game. And looking at it, I think you can immediately see why. There is absolutely nothing else that we have played on the Super Nintendo that looks anything like this. Yeah, this game looks surprisingly great on the Super Nintendo. Um, this game was ported to pretty much everything back in the day. It almost had the sort of cultural impact that like a Myst game would have a few years later. Getting this game to the Super NES was no easy task, and when discussing the SNES port specifically, we need to bring up another name, that name being Rebecca Ann Heinemann, who we've talked about before. She was tasked by Interplay, who was handling the SNES and Genesis ports of the game, to get this game crammed onto a SNES cart as cheaply as possible, apparently. In an archived interview with a website called Grok Code, Heinemann calls the project her greatest achievement. To hear her tell the story, Interplay denied her a lot of tech like static RAM or a 3.6 megahertz ROM in the cartridge itself to get the job done. Um, this is a direct quote from her. Uh, Frustrated, I shoved my block move code into the DMA registers and used it as RAM running at 3.6 megahertz. It worked. I got fast block moves on slow cartridges and made a game using polygons working on a 65816 with pure software rendering. I do not know what most of that means, but I am sure it was very impressive. <laughs> um, and you can't deny the results because, the, as I said, the game looks surprisingly good on the SNES. So we have mentioned Heinemann before. She was one of the programmers behind the bold but ultimately failed experiment that was RPM Racing. So it makes me happy to be able to talk about her again in a much more successful context. Absolutely. It is really impressive that this game that was originally designed for much more powerful computer hardware is all here, essentially. Sure, there's a few load times, there's some sound that's missing, but the whole game, the experience of it, is really here. That's, that's extremely impressive, considering what this game is. I think this game has a bit of a reputation for being really hard to play, and I, I definitely remember it being almost impenetrable to me back when I played this with some friends in college, though granted we may have been drinking at the time, so maybe that was why, but <laughs> playing it now, it actually wasn't nearly as hard to control as I remember it being. In fact, I, I managed to get a, a good chunk of the way into the game. Yeah, I was able to control the character just fine. I think it takes a little bit of getting used to, but... 
Uh, the thing is, this is not a terribly long game. I mean, even if you're playing through just doing like a full playthrough, as long as you know what you're doing and you don't die, it's about half an hour. But of course, it'll take you much longer to play through it if you're going in kind of blind, because there are a lot of environmental puzzles in this game and a lot of places where you have to figure out what's possible in the situation that you're in and then use whatever abilities you have to get through that. This is a cinematic platformer, which that is, if you don't know, a kind of fairly specific term. It encompasses games like Prince of Persia and Flashback, The Quest for Identity. It's basically a type of platform game that is very reliant on deliberate inputs. Uh, Usually the characters in it are exceptionally well animated and have these limitations to how they move that mean that you kind of have to get accustomed to what's actually possible to do with the character and then use that for various like specifically timed jumps sometimes combat but even that usually has some kind of almost like a choreography to it that you need to figure out the cinematics of it are just incredible when lester is first transported to this alien world you have to immediately swim out of a pond and then run through some caverns and then you're approached by this giant monster and it like that moment itself is just so cool the action cuts away from the 2D perspective that you normally have when you're in control of the character to show you just this full front view of the beast. And it's completely black, so you can't make out any details, but you can see the white of its teeth just suggesting this giant mouth. The art style here is just incredible. It's all very minimally detailed, but it still uh, suggests these 3D characters in this very flat animation style. I just think it looks amazing. And I I find it kind of weird that I, I don't feel like I've seen a lot of animation in any other media that uses this particular style a lot. Maybe it turned a lot of people off. I don't know, but I think it looks really cool. I think it looks great, and I think it holds up exceptionally well today. You mentioned before um, this first area where you explore a little bit, and then you're confronted by the beast, and you have to run away from it. There's this great thing that's done there where the beast is actually visible skulking around in the background while you're exploring. And it's really, like, cleanly detailed, just this, like, black geometric shape moving around against the sky. It looks amazing, and it is truly cinematic in a way that nothing else that I've seen from this time period, honestly, was really capable of being. The character himself has a pretty strange jump where he barely even leaves the floor. It, it's it's almost more like he's walking over something. It's like a big step, almost. Yeah. When you see that, you realize, like, okay, I can use that to avoid things on the ground, but you have to be pretty precise about it or else, you know, you're still going to end up getting killed by whatever it is you're trying to avoid. But again, because the game isn't very long, the precise movements don't feel like this horrible obstacle to overcome. Like, if these were all Mario World-sized levels where I have to make these precise movements, There's just no way I'd ever get through it. But the game really is divided up only into probably like, you know, a few dozen screens of actual gameplay. And every single screen is just sort of its own puzzle to be figured out. Like, okay, where do I jump? There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And we haven't even really talked a whole lot about the friend that you make early on who you can't communicate with because everybody's an alien and doesn't speak the same language you do. But the game really gives you the impression like, okay, this person's your friend. You're both trying to escape from these other aliens together and you need to rely on each other. And again, this is very much like the game Eco. You have to protect this other character that you meet, even though you can't directly 
communicate with her, but you have to keep her safe because she is the key to completing the game. You both have to rely on each other because neither one of you can do it alone. There are multiple times throughout this game where you are kind of split up from your alien friend. You break out of prison together, and then he helps you open some doors. He opens a shaft for you to jump down into to escape. And then when you meet back up with him later, it feels really good. Like there's a really good sense of friendship between these characters that is really effectively conveyed just by things like body language and the scene setting and stuff that is very unusual for a game of this vintage to be able to pull off this this effectively. And, and again, like I still just can't get over like the cinematic aspects of it. When you first pick up the gun, the camera changes to showing a close-up of the gun on the floor and Lester's hand picking it up, letting you know, okay, you've got a gun now. Oh, like a really cool moment that I love. The first time Lester meets the aliens is when they actually shoot the beast that is pursuing him, leaving Lester to think maybe these people are friendly. He tries to wave to them, and you see a close-up on Lester. It's very subtle because, you know, the, the Super NES could only handle so much graphical fidelity, but you see his facial expression change ever so slightly from a kind of, you know, like, hey, thanks for saving me sort of look to a kind of concern. You aren't going to shoot me next, are you? And again, it's a very subtle change in his eyes, but you can definitely see it, and it works, and it is so good. This is not a unique observation by me, but I think it is really true. This game almost feels like a 2010s indie game that got sent back in time. It sort of captures a language for how to like convey things with cinematic language in combination with the gameplay that feels really, really unique and far ahead of its time here. Well, the game does give you a lot of information just through the characters in this nonverbal way. Some things you kind of have to figure out on your own or you would need to have the manual, like the fact that the pistol that you pick up early on in the game can also fire force fields and super-powered charge shots, depending on how long you hold the shoot button before releasing it. That's not obvious at all. Yeah, and I did get stopped up a little bit. There's an area fairly early on after you get the pistol where you do have to use the fully powered up beam from it to break down a wall. And you do actually have to hold down the button quite a significantly longer amount of time than you do just to make the force field happen in order for it to fully power up. And it it wasn't really clear to me that that was even a thing that it was possible to do with the gun. I spent a little bit of time kind of banging my head against a wall trying to figure out what I was supposed to do next because of that. There's also the thing that, like, if you make one mistake more often than not... You're dead. Yeah. um, For sure, yeah. When I played this game back in college with my friends, we could not figure out how to get past, like, the very second screen of this game where there are leeches crawling along the ground, and if your sprite comes in contact with them, you get a scene of the leech rearing up, a fang coming out of it, and then it scrapes your leg and apparently that is enough to kill Lester immediately. Yeah, that can be genuinely pretty frustrating, especially since the game does a checkpoint at the start of each new major area. So that does mean that sometimes you have to repeat a few steps to like get through to the next area. And even if you know what you're doing, if you just mess up with the controls, which it is possible to do because the animations in this are so long and baked in, if you just like start a jump in the wrong place or something, you end up falling into a a pit of spikes or not making it past the leeches or whatever, then yeah, you do then have to like redo the whole sequence again. A thing that mitigates that, unless you happen to be going out there and getting an original cartridge for this, probably you have access to save states. 
And I usually don't like to talk about that when we're talking about the games here. I've used them sometimes to see additional parts of games that I just wouldn't have had time to make it through to. But in this case, given that more recent commercial re-releases of Another World or Out of This World allow you the opportunity to just save instantly anywhere... I don't think recommending somebody play through this game using save states is actually so far outside the the spirit of, of the game itself. I do think there is some value in playing this game the way it was originally intended to be played. But, you know, if you're playing this and you have seen the same screen 20 times because you just can't quite make the jump over that leech do a save state and practice it until you get good at it the game as a whole is not that long and everything in it is pretty much bespoke there's no real repetition in the areas everything is very clearly designed and it flows from moment to moment really well and it's really worth getting to see those parts of the game that you may get stopped up on if you get frustrated and and sort of nope out of the game early. I, I think it's something that helps because of the inconsistency of the length of each section. The section where you're just rolling through the ducks avoiding the steam vents. Yeah, and that's one screen and that's an entire section that it does checkpoint you before and after. Right, and then you go into like another section that has a lot of different elements to it that you have to do over and over again, maybe because you're dying, getting a little further and then dying each time. Maybe some of those segments could have been broken up into more manageable chunks just as the game was originally. But I I can definitely see like, yeah, save states would help alleviate that problem. It would alleviate the problem, but also there is value in the restarts where they are in some cases, because I did run into a situation sort of later on in the game where I did a major component of of one of the sections out of sequence accidentally. The only way I would have been able to correct that would be to go back to the checkpoint, which was at the beginning of that entire section. For the most part, I don't think this is the same kind of almost pathological difficulty setting that some older games have where you know it just feels like the places it makes you restart are there to punish you. Yeah, and I mean, the, the game did offer unlimited continues, at least on the Super NES version that I, I know of. They didn't have this idea that, like, we're making a game so hard that, like, only a certain subset of people who started up are going to complete it. I was really, really impressed with this one in a way that I was not expecting at all. My impressions of it were that, like, oh, it has a really interesting and unique look going for it, but it's not very playable, and having played it now, I just feel like, wow, what an incredible experience this is you know the the only knock against it i could say on the super nes is that there are better versions out there but again like even the super nintendo version is incredibly impressive well uh i think i am ready to try and find a place on the list which i I think might be kind of a tall task right now i feel like we've been pretty glowing in our praise for this game which means it's probably going to go pretty high on the list. Do you have a place that you want us to start looking at here? I think a good place to start might actually be Hook at number 16, which I think is also a kind of cinematic platformer where you're not meant to be like blazing through the levels. It's all pretty slow and deliberate, not nearly to the extent that this game is. I think that's fair. I would go up from Hook, personally. I would too. I think that this game is doing some very unique stuff, both as like a technical achievement and just as as like an artistic one. Um, I think I would put this above Blade Blazion. I think I would play this before Blazion. Lemmings. You know, I think I would go above Lemmings and Contra 3 at number 13. I think I would go above both of those. I, I would agree with that. 
Yeah. Mario Kart. This is a tough one. It's very hard to compare these. And on its face, saying Out of This World is a better game than Mario Kart would have most people up in arms. But I think I'm more fascinated by Out of This World. Like, I think I would want to dive back into it before Mario Kart. I would agree with that. Yeah. We're kind of knocking on the door of the top 10 here. But we've got Top Gear, number 11. It's kind of in a similar company with Out of This World because visually it's a lot more than I would have expected from a Super Nintendo game, especially a Super Nintendo game of this vintage that wouldn't have had the benefit of things like the Super FX chip. Since we're getting close now and we've just played both of these games, let's have this conversation. Do you think this goes as high as Soul Blazer? It's interesting that we ended up playing both of these games here because they are, I think, both games that are trying to do some pretty forward-thinking things. Even though Soul Blazer on the face of it is a pretty conventional action RPG, I will say that I've played or attempted to play several cinematic platformers in my life. And Out of This World is the only one of those that I've really been able to get into without just getting frustrated by the game design or the the controls or, or any of that i think i would be tempted to put out of this world higher but it, it feels like the cinematic platformer in general is sort of a, maybe a little bit of an evolutionary dead end as far as gaming is concerned lester has these very precise movements that you sort of have to wait before you can do another input. And I think that kind of the idea of merging sort of cinematic elements with a more sort of immediately responsive gameplay style basically became the standard for platformers that want to tell a story. If anything, this sort of game is maybe like a precursor to something like the Souls series or Bloodborne, where, you know, again, you have these very deliberate movements that you you have to time correctly and you can't just interrupt a movement. That's very true. The, the kind of animation focus game design like this yeah so that's why you know i i really like this game but i don't think that the sort of cumbersome movement is a flaw in this kind of game i can see why people wouldn't like that nowadays and this is not a game that comes up in the best super nintendo game conversations and and in a way like that's a shame because it is really that good that maybe it should be in that argument much more but like it's a harder sell these days with that deliberate movement in a 2D side-scroller context. I feel like it's maybe just my surprise at all of this that is making me want to put it as high as I am. I don't know, like, Soul Blazer feels really solid, and it, I mean, obviously it's just a much longer experience. You know, it actually would take a, a decent bit of time to noodle your way through out of this world and figure out exactly what you're supposed to do in every in every sequence. Everything in it is so exquisitely designed in that way that there doesn't feel like there's there's any kind of filler around the good moments in it, you know? This this game is like kind of such a distinctive experience that I don't know where to put this, honestly. This one's very tough. You know, I think maybe in some ways, now that I'm looking at this, Super Castlevania 4 might be the most appropriate comparison for this. Because I think that that is a game that is also using, in some ways, very, you know, kind of similar sort of deliberate controls. And it has really great art and design. And it's not really trying to tell individualized story the same way that Out of This World is. But I think it is also hitting on some of the same ways in which you can use a game to convey these feelings in a way that I, I think makes it the closest comparison we have on the list here. I think that based on that, Super Castlevania 4 is the absolute ceiling because I don't think that this game is as successful as Castlevania 4. 
No, I don't either. You know, I really admire everything that it does, but I think that just as far as being like a really flesh out and really effective game design, I think Super Castlevania 4 beats this one. Again, I'm having the same problem where like I could almost see a better conversation happening with this versus Final Fantasy 2, but with TMNT 4, I feel like there's no way it goes above TMNT 4, which either means we just got to say, okay, we're going to swap these two right now, or we're just going to decide that it's it's not as good as either of those two and, and just move on. I think we should have an actual discussion about TMNT 4 and Final Fantasy 2. But for the time being, I would feel more comfortable just putting this below both of them. Yeah, I think so, too. I definitely don't think we have time to relitigate those two games right now. We've gone on a while. As Every time we talk about the top 10 list now, I, I kind of see it. And I kind of want to examine those two games in, in conjunction with each other a little bit more specifically. So we're back at, at Soul Blazer at number seven. We're back to Soul Blazer. I think that based on everything that we said when we were talking about them, probably I would put this just above Soul Blazer. Really? Just above? There are just little things in Soul Blazer that aren't quite as as precise as what's in Out of This World. Like things like what we were talking about with like the the first boss just sort of being like in a, a war of attrition, basically. That's true. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that make me feel like just there's so much polish to every aspect of out of this world that that i would just barely edge it out does that make sense i mean i don't know if i would call it polish because i think some things about out of this world are sloppy but i also think some of that sloppiness is what makes that game great in a way i guess that's fair i guess that's fair i I think that roughness can come across more as charming or or something in out of this world whereas like that soul blazer boss encounter just feels like they weren't playing to the game's strengths it just feels like they were like oh well we've got to have a boss here and we don't really have an idea for it so here let's just do this thing boy this is just this feels like just such a weird call because i just feel like out of this world on the SNES has never been the top 10 anything yeah (laughs) you know what i'm saying and for us to put it here feels weird but also like whatever this is our list i don't care like people can tell us why they think we're wrong and and give us impassioned good arguments on twitter if they would like at snescapades go ahead if, if if you feel so inclined I think I'm okay with putting this as our new number seven right above Soul Blazer. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Uh, well, that's kind of kind of amazing. Uh, two new games in the top ten today. Yeah. Out of this world and Soul Blazer. That means Actraiser is now number ten. Mm-hmm. UN Squadron now just outside the top ten. Yeah, UN Squadron and Top Gear, unfortunately, get, get bumped from the top ten here. But yeah. there's just a lot more good games than bad ones on this list, I maintain. If I'm looking down at, at the list, which now has 107 games on it, I would honestly say that everything down into... Kind of the mid-60s, I think, is a is a really definitively good game. Obviously, we are not going to get to our third game that we were going to play today. No, sadly, uh, on, on the ball, we'll have to wait until next week. Yeah. Mild spoiler alert. I thought that one was okay, too. Not nearly as, as amazing I, yeah, as these two. As, but Not on the level of these two, but I thought it was good, and I think we'll have a fun time talking about it. The games that we have coming up for next time now include on the ball. Uh, what else do we have? Imperium. And Gun Force. So uh, one by Vic Takai and one by Irem. So interesting. I have no idea how those are going to be. I don't know anything about them. I'm feeling pretty good about November so far, though. I I feel like it's off to an extremely strong start. There's some really bad stuff that's going to be very interesting to talk about. There's some stuff that's not great, but that I really really love coming up in november pretty sure none of those games are going to inspire the the sort of length of conversation that out of this world gave us this time yeah that's the kind of thing that that 
you only really want to have happen every once in a while, I feel like. Well, I mean, if we had one of these every time, then we'd only be able to talk about two games every week, and I'd have to change the intro again. And we don't want that. Yeah. We never want that. No, no. Never again. All right, folks. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this very, very long discussion about these two games. We hope you enjoyed them. And as always, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Yeah, no, actually, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for it right now. It says uh, number of episodes, 13, with one unaired. So Yep, so it, it got... It got- got canceled uh mid midstream there yeah it it got what i will call the standard fox treatment <laughs> much, yeah pretty much